The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. We're going to be reading from Amos 5 today. It's on page 719 in your pew Bible if you'd like to look. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to have one, so please just take one of these from Park Church. Amos 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing." Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades in Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the sky into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, that you will not dwell in. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to those, to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the formers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all vineyards there will be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. My name is Neil. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, Merry Christmas. Wrong answer. Advent. It's not Christmas tide; hasn't begun. Um, no, we're we as a church. We, we try to participate in the the kind of macro structure of the liturgies that, that have been passed down 
uh, throughout church history because we think there's a wisdom in them. Uh, not, not to be ruled by them, say Merry Christmas, greet one another, it's wonderful. Um, and yet we can, we can so often as a church, as a people, um, kind of get pulled into the, the consumer narrative or kind of all the festivities and, and miss out on the heart of, of what Advent is meant to be. Uh, I think a lot of times we treat this season leading up to Christmas kind of like uh, a tailgate party uh, before the big game. Uh, so if you will, uh, the game, which happened a week ago yesterday against Michigan and Ohio State. Um, my, my wife hails from Michigan. They are, are huge um, Wolverine fans. I mean, in-laws have season tickets to the big house. They were there at the game, at the game, uh, the, the greatest rivalry in college football. I, I'm not necessarily a Michigan fan, but like Big Ten and anything that, that puts SEC kind of back in their place, um, I'm a fan of. Uh, we'll see with the college football playoff. You guys may have nobody. Nobody. It could, it could happen. Um, all right, no one's from the SEC or you're just like too sour to respond. I don't know. But, uh, we, you know, kind of a vision that the tailgate party that was probably taking place, um, that was taking place before the Michigan and Ohio State game um, just last week. And, you know, kids are throwing footballs, acting like Blake Corum, J.J. McCarthy, throwing passes. Uh, they got food on the grill. You've got music playing, beer in hand. It's like as much of the experience of the game, they want to like pull that back into the tailgate party. Like we want to experience that, have fun, get excited, and anticipate, you know, what's to come until the, the main event actually arrives. That, that's often how we treat Advent leading up to Christmas, but that's not, that's not what it's meant to be. The Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, uh, which simply means coming or arrival. And, and what's in view is the coming of Jesus. And so we look to the first coming of Jesus at his birth. It's, you know, it's what most of our songs are about during this time of year. It's the stories that we're reading. That Christ entered into, the, the, the second person of the Trinity entered into the human narrative, taking on human flesh, in order to deliver his people from their sins, from our, our captivity. But we also have two other advents that are in view. Uh, the advent of his spirit, that, that when Christ ascended, after he accomplished the, his work on the cross, in the resurrection, he ascended to the Father and he gave his Holy Spirit to his people to dwell within us, to lead us to the Father, to speak to us with particular gifts to, to serve the family of God, but also to live on mission where he calls us to go. But perhaps primarily for us, what's in view is this, this last advent, the, the, the second coming of Jesus. Because when he left, he promised, he said, I'm, I am going to come again. The same way that you saw me leave, I'm going to come again to make all things new. And so the season of Advent is meant uh, to teach us to long for, to anticipate, uh, to ache for the coming of King Jesus in all of his fullness and the fullness of his kingdom, to take everything wrong in the world and to make it right, to wipe away every tear, everything that is, is broken and been destroyed because of sin, rebellion against God and our own lives and our relationships and the world at large, to make all things new. So Advent could be a little bit more like what Ohio State is experiencing right now for the next 363 days until November 30th when the next game between Michigan and Ohio State and they have a chance at redemption. There's a, there's a longing, there's an anticipation, but there's an ache for something that has not yet fully arrived. Ah, so enjoy the Christmas festivities. I mean, I'm, I'm first in line when it comes to, you know, Claymation Rudolph is just like a staple in our home. Uh, we, you know, we've got the Advent hymn sing coming up um, right here in a couple weeks, which I am, encourage all of you to come to. But we will be donning our, uh, our I think the technical term is fammy jammies. Uh, so we have the, the matching onesies, the you know, candy cane stripes, uh, the big buttons, the whole thing. I've been told I should feel self-conscious about it. Hasn't registered yet. Um, so maybe, maybe this is the year. Um, all, all about those things. Let's get little drops of Christmas throughout this season. But may we as a church allow the season of Advent to shape us, to shape our hearts and our longings, uh, to, to feel some of the, the pain and the ache uh, that the world is not yet made new. Uh, we long for Christ to come and to do precisely that. Um, a quote from uh, Fleming Rutledge, if you ever, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a hefty book, but it's worth it. Everything in it is just is wonderfully worded. Um, her book just titled Advent um, I feel like captures, really especially where we're going this Sunday. So, so our, our Advent season, we're looking at the, the achings of the human soul. 
And this morning we're looking at, at the aching of justice, the ache for justice. We long for, for the world to be turned right side up again and the way that humans relate to one another, the way society is structured, the way that we, we treat our fellow neighbor. Um, Fleming Rutledge has this to say. There are cover-ups of all sorts. There are families that will not acknowledge the alcoholism that is destroying them. There are people who are making their loved ones miserable but will not go to a therapist. There are secretaries who cover up for bosses, business partners who cover up for each other, colonels for generals, bishops for clergy, parents for children. Advent is the season of the uncovering. This is the right time to root out the cover-ups in our own lives as we wait with bated breath for the lights to come on and the announcement of the angel that God is not against us, but for us. May Advent be that season for us. Will we allow the lights to turn on in the darker places of our hearts? Are the things we ache for, the ways in which we ache, we ache on behalf of other people, we allow him to light up those places with his voice, with his promises, with his coming. So we're going to look in Amos chapter 5 um, here this morning, but let me pray for us before we, we get into that. God, Jesus, thank you that you are indeed the light of the world. May, may the, what can turn into cliches or catchphrases of the faith um, not be lost on us, that, that, that you enter into the darkness and there, there is no darkness that can overcome you. There, there is no shadow that you do not speak light and life into. There is no area of life that you, you don't want us to bring into your presence to come before you and to, to name with honesty the ache that we feel. You want all of it. You are the, the cosmic Christ, and you came to renew everything, far as the curse is found. So may we be a people who are instructed by this season, and we learn this, this, this pattern, this, this beautiful habit of coming before you honestly, in community, under your voice, but experiencing your, your nearness in, our present, in your presence. Uh, so please, work in us now. Teach us. Instruct us from Amos chapter 5. And may you glorify yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Amos chapter 5. And we're talking about aching for justice. Now, I feel like you, you throw out a word like justice, and it, it, it stirs all sorts of different things for us, right? Like maybe some hard conversations that you've had with family members or friends or things you've interacted around unhelpfully, probably on social media, um, around kind of like, what are we even talking about? You know, how often are we talking past one another when it comes to a theme of, of justice and what a just society actually looks like, what it, what it means to, to do justly? Now, I appreciate moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre. Uh, one of his books is titled, Whose Justice, Which Rationality? And the whole premise is, like, we, we, we often talk past one another because we, we don't know the whole host of, of a tradition, of thinkers, of books that have been published, of a particular way of thinking and processing the world that, that, that we, we kind of carry in with our assumptions when we talk about something that seems so simple as justice. What we're going to see in Amos chapter 5, that's a pretty heavy-hitting passage. I mean, he does Amos... His style was not to like pull punches, be like, hey, let me, let me kind of coddle you for a little while and kind of say hard things, but not really. He just, he just kind of launches in because he, he sees something very particular in the people of God. And he said, you, you've missed the very heart of God. And therefore, your society is unraveling in these ways. And what we're going to find as we follow the, the movement of the text, that justice is found within, it emerges from the very person and character of God himself. Now, before we get to any ways of thinking or different uh, structures of, of different societies, we must get to the person of God himself. And that's where he's going to take us. Well, who is Amos? Who is, who is uh, semi-famous Amos? Somewhat. Depends on the circle uh, that you're in. Uh, but I, I, was, I was trying to think through, you know, what would be a good way to, to kind of capture uh, Amos. So I was like, well, let's, let's launch him forward. You know, he's, he's prophesying around 760 B.C., maybe late 750s B.C. Um, so what if, what if he had a, a LinkedIn tag that we're able to, to kind of get, or who, is, who is this guy, Amos? And there he is. I mean, kind of. 
Someone imagine. I don't, I don't know why, what they kind of drew upon to say this is probably what Amos looked like, but he's kind of a good-looking guy. Um, Amos, lover of Yahweh, shepherd and farmer, unexpected prophet. From, the, from Tekoa, Judah, in the southern kingdoms, is after the, 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 um, Israel had been divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and he's just, he's just a guy. He's a guy who was in a fairly well-to-do family. Um, he, you know, a little bit of means, a little bit of education, uh, kind of a, you know, he comes through in his writing, pretty, pretty smart, uh, well-educated guy. But he's a, he's a farmer, and he's tending to sheep, and he, he had no kind of anticipation of becoming a prophet. And yet God gives him a particular call where he begins to see things in light of God's character and say, something doesn't match here. That, uh, Beholding who God is, what he has spoken, what he's given us of himself, and then seeing how, how God's people had structured their life together. The poor and the marginalized were, were discounted. They were set aside. They were ignored. There were intentional structures to kind of leave them there in their life together. And so he says, we need to, we need to have a chat. So what does he talk about? He talks about false worship quite a bit, uh, justice, judgment, and covenant, some of the themes that come out in the book of Amos, and we're going to see um, many of those, if not all of them, in our, our text. So Amos, the unexpected prophet, writing into, speaking into a culture that has some similarities to where we, many of us sit today uh, in 21st century Denver, Colorado. It was, it was a, a relatively well-to-do community. Uh, they had kind of a basic source of income and a roof over their heads and kind of had their patterns of life and worship. They're, they're pretty religious people. They, they kind of had the external things of like participating in the things that God had said. These are, these are good to do. Like we're, we're doing those. But they had grown pretty dispassionate, pretty indifferent, pretty ignorant and blind to the plight of the poor in their midst. Uh, the, the people who were experiencing the most acute suffering they were rather disinterested in doing something about that or maybe restructuring their lives in such a way that would care for the least, the most visibly broken, those that were pushed to the margins of society. In Amos chapter 5, here we're entering into the very center of the book of Amos, the very center of his argument, and he does it. The way he articulates this is so beautiful. I think sometimes, yes, we need to recognize foundationally that the God has, has breathed out Scripture. It is true. It is good. It is, is of the Holy Spirit, working through human authors. It is authoritative. It is for us. What we're to submit to his voice through Scripture. It's our final authority. And it is beautiful. Like just the, the literary genius that we see come through, that, that God leveraged in different times and places and different human authors to just give us like beautiful images and metaphors and, and the way they structure their argument. And there's one in particular that I want us to pay attention to because it, it wouldn't have been lost on the, the ears of the first hearers of this message, but it's lost on us unless we, we learn to pay attention to it. He uses something called a chiasm. Chiasm. This is a relatively simple literary structure that, that is, is trying to artfully drive at a particular point, but also give us parallels in what's being communicated. So we'll, we'll, we're going to work through this text, verses 1 through 17, according to this chiasm, so they can kind of the A and the A apostrophe, like that with the superscript on it, that those can be instructive to one another in, in what God is conveying. But this is the structure that he's using, and the most important thing about a chiasm is that if you have a centerpiece that doesn't have a parallel, which is going to be D for us, when you have that centerpiece, that is the main point. Everything else is oriented around that. This is what he's driving toward. This is, is kind of the, the orbital force is coming to this particular place in what he is saying, and we're going to get there together. All right, so the first part of the chiasm, the lament of God. Uh, if you closed your Bibles... I'm sorry, I'm going to ask for another two and a half minutes of your time to find Amos again, uh, because we're going to follow this, this text together. This, honestly, this might be a really good one if, you're, if it's your Bible and you, want to, you like taking notes in there, uh, to, to make some notes around this chiasm, because it will help you to see the text more fully for what, what God intended, what Amos intended for us. So Amos chapter 5, starting verse 1. 
Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. God is talking to his family, house of Israel. This is family of God. It's like, hey, these are, these are my people. So a lot of what he has to say in this passage would have been pretty alarming for them because they're like, hey, we're, we're good with God. He is our God. We have kind of the, the structure to our services. We have our feasts and our festivals. We pay our tithes and all these different things. We're, we're, we're kind of good with God. And God's saying, no, I'm, I'm entering into a lament over your pending destruction. You, you're not good with me. This is where things are headed. You're, you're, you're going to move out in battle and, and maybe you have some sort of confidence, but you shouldn't because I'm, I'm going to tithe your people. A thousand go out, hundred come back. And then I'm going to do it again. hundred go out, ten come back. Here is virgin Israel, kind of so much opportunity and life out in front of you. And yet, as we'll see, you've rejected, he says, his heart of justice, his heart for people. Ultimately, rejected God himself and the worship of him. And therefore, you're, you're, you're about to experience the unraveling of your society that comes as a result. So he's speaking to his own people, and he has a hard word for them. You know, who, would, who would come to raise them up? Well, it would be the Lord God. But he's like, I'm not, but I'm not coming this time. And then you jump down to verse 16, verses 16 and 17, which is the parallel Verses. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Kind of saying, Hey, this lament that I'm entering into because of your, your pending destruction, it's going to roll through your streets. It's going to be in the public square. It's going to be in the farm areas. It's going to be in the vineyards. Uh, the professional lamenters, like they're, they're on board, like they're leading the charge. But everybody is experiencing this. No one is going to be able to distance themselves from the destruction and therefore the lament that comes as a result. And notice, it comes, verse 17, for I will pass through your midst. The connection back to the Passover would not have been missed by them. It's like, well, no, 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 God, the, the Passover is when we commemorate that you, you moved through, but you destroyed our enemy and, and delivered us. He's like, but not this time. As I pass through you, as I come into your midst, you, you have now become my enemy. You, you have become the one that I'm going to judge. And so as I enter in, I will slice through. Judgment will come forth, and the only proper response will be lament, and it will be lament for everyone. This is a hard word that God is speaking to his people. Where does it come from? Our next section, <coughs> the worship of God. Look at me in verse 4. Four. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. He's given an invitation. And there's opportunity to turn from this. This is what's coming if you don't change your course of action. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal and cross, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. So, so God has given an invitation to return. He's like, hey, this is, this is the path you're on, but you can turn back to me. Seek me. Fundamentally, he's saying what you have is a worship problem. Well, what you've said is most important in your life. Well, what you've kind of oriented your, your, your energy and your time and your money and your affection, your thought life, your words, all of that, it's going in, in the wrong place. And, and really, it's, it's only slightly the wrong place, but it takes them into a horrible, ultimate destination. The places that he names here of, of Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba, these were, were still in the land of Israel and, and Judah. And there were, there were, there were things that, that took place there where God worked powerfully in the midst of his people. But what they had done is they had taken some of the, uh, 
the kind of extraneous things, kind of not, not coming after God himself in Jerusalem where he had revealed his presence at the temple where he said, this is where you worship me. And that they've gone off just maybe a degree or two and created these shrines where it became false worship. Say, God, we're not going to seek you in the way that you've said to seek you. We're, we're going to kind of go here. It's going to feel religious. It's going to have like an ethical flair to it. It's going to do some of the things that you said. But we've lost the heart of worship. And this is where we have to understand what the Bible talks about when it says worship. A lot of times we think worship, we think, oh, singing. It's like, well, yes, it is that. But really, you, you break down the idea, and it's where do we ascribe the most worth, the most value? With our lives, where, where do we say this is the most important thing, or these things, that, that, that's what I want to kind of give my life to. And so when I think about uh, the energy that I have in a day, the, the, the time that I've been given, uh, the, the resources, the finances, my relationships, my, my, my speech. I'm going to give these things in a particular direction, and, and what's it going to be oriented around? So you kind of think of a, you know, kind of the, the, the orbit. You know, the, the larger the planet, the larger the, the thing up in, in space is going to have a, a, a greater orbital pull toward it. And so the things that, ha- that have the, the largest space in our hearts and our affections, we're ascribing the most worth to, and they're going to have the strongest orbital pull in, in, in giving our lives to. And God is saying, hey, you're, you're, you're kind of close, but you're not. You kind of have these other religious sites or whatever, but, but you've, you've put your affection in the wrong location, and therefore it's leading to a particular way of living that is ultimately going to be judged. But then look at the parallel text over in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Don't miss this parallel. Middle of verse 4, end of verse 4. Seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And then he parallels that in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. This is, this is Scripture doing exactly what Jesus said about you love God and you love neighbor. All the law and prophets hang on these two. And really it's one and the same. As we love God, as, as he becomes the center of our lives, a life of love and of sacrifice, of care, of concern for those outside of ourselves begins to flow out of us. We love God and we love neighbor. This is the heart of worship. This is what God has called us to. This is what God is calling his people to in this text. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Saying, hey, there's still... There's still time. There's still opportunity for you guys. Assyria is out there, but it's not yet. You you may turn back to me, to a true heart of worship. See, what what God's people had done, and I think what we're often so guilty of doing, is is kind of taking God for granted as the basic furniture of our lives. It's like, yeah, we've got kind of our our particular religious-type things that we do, uh, we, can, we can check some boxes, we can appease the conscience, uh, we can look good to other people in certain contexts, and we can frame it a certain way so different groups of friends see us in a, you know, not too weird, but like a good light. Um, we can have all of those things, but then come to assume God is just kind of there and he's for us because I've, I've, I've done a few right things, right? And what, what they fail to realize and what I think we can fail to realize is that when we do that, we're building our entire lives off of our own preferences. We haven't come before God and said, what do you have to say about our worship? What do you have to say about my affections? What do you have to say about how I'm building my life? What, what do you have to say about kind of what I care most about, where I give my energy and my life to? What do you have to say about that? Instead, we make these assumptions. We, we, we can so often just kind of build a, a comfortable life that makes sense to us, and we miss the very heart of God in worship, and it leads to something. And that goes to our next section, the justice of God. Look with me in verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He's saying hey, your, your, your false worship, which you've ascribed value to most in your life, it has led to something very particular in your life with other people. And you've taken this beautiful thing of justice that, that God himself defines and gives to his people, 
and you've turned it into to wormwood, which is this, this bitter plant. It's like something that you, you'd want for like life and nourishment and sustenance, and it's actually become bitter for those who partake of it. And you cast down righteousness to the earth. So the righteous God who gives his righteous decrees, saying, no, we, we don't want that. We're going to pull that down to earth and define it the way that we want to. What kind of makes sense to me? What, what, what is preferential for my way of life? And it's going to kind of help me accomplish my goals that I've set out for myself. So you've done the exact opposite, he says, of what you were designed for. And how does that get worked out? And we go across the chiasm in verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you will not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. The way that their society was structured, this, you know, this idea of, of the gate and justice in the gate, um, that, that's where it was kind of the, the center, the touchstone of their, their life together. That's uh, where a lot would, would take place, uh, particularly around adjudicating justice. So the elders of that community would, would hang out there, and if you had a particular case that you wanted to be heard, you, you, would, you would come and you would bring it to the elders at the gate. And they would ask questions, they would talk about it, you would hear of different witnesses, and you would process, and they would, they would deliver um, their verdict in, in discerning the case in front of them. And what, what God is saying is like, those who, who had uh, the most ability to, to set the structure of that society were by design keeping those who were already at the margins further at the margins, Th- those without resources, those without access to power, those without kind of a functional voice in that society. It's kind of like, we like that. We're going we're gonna to find ways to keep you there. We'll get justice for ourselves, but a different type of justice for you to the point that the guy would say, that, he's like, you, you, you guys hate those who speak truth. Like those who would shine a light on these things, you're trying to shut them up. You don't want the elders to deal justly. Their society had been built in such a way that that those without access were just kind of continuing to spiral in the same trajectory. And they'd grown rather cold and unfeeling toward it. Appreciate how Dr. Danny Carroll um, defines justice, especially as it emerges in Amos. Justice is the fruit of righteousness made concrete in every dimension of a community's life, in dealings between individuals, equitable laws, a properly functioning judicial process, as well as fair and charitable legal decisions. Ultimately, justice and righteousness are grounded in the character of God. The Lord expects his moral standards to be followed by societies and their rulers, especially by his chosen people. They had grown accustomed to a society that operated a certain way, according to certain spoken and many unspoken rules that they found quite comfortable and relaxing, kind of worked well for them. There was a particular class of people that did not, and God was paying attention to it. I think it's worth us paying attention as he leads us in it. You know, there, there, there are different ways where this can land with us, and I, even particularly for that, that society, there were ways that they were just kind of outright operating in injustice. They had unjust laws, unjust practices, and those things needed to change. Where that, where that lands for us, where we have the ability to, to see and discern where there are unjust laws or practices and say, hey, I have agency to do something about that, we should step in. As the people of God, that we should be concerned for the, the plight of those who suffer injustice. But there are two other categories that were also happening here that, that I think probably more so apply for us. And, and one would be kind of a, a loophole in justice. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm playing by the rules. I, I know the legal structure. I know the laws. I'm not breaking any of them. I don't think so. Like, I'm kind of doing the right things. But, but the way that we, we kind of move through the systems that we're in allow us to be better off at the expense of other people. And if we slow down and start to pay attention and to feel with others, we realize I can do things differently, not, not as a way of, of now obeying the law, but because this is what God has called me to, to, to see my brother or my sister, to see my fellow human beings in front of me. How might I do things differently? The third category, and this may be the, the largest for us, 
injustice through indifference. And if you want to work your way through Amos, which I would encourage, uh, particularly in chapter 6, uh, this comes out most clearly that it was going on in this, in this culture. Uh, this is a, hey, we're kind of doing things right. We're kind of ethical. We're pretty religious. We're kind of checking the right boxes. We're kind of going through the flow of life. And I, I, I'm enjoying the fruit of my own labor that I've done justly and I've worked hard and, you know, I've, I've invested my life and my money. I've tried to be wise about those things. And here's kind of the fruit, the, the life that I'm enjoying because of that. And it's not that anything was wrong about those. There's so much that, that is commendable and good. It's like good stewardship that God has designed us for as humans. But if that is also alongside an indifference to those who have not had the same experience, those who have not had the same access to, to different opportunities or resources, or, or even by their own decisions have not chosen to do the same way that you have, and their decisions have actually led to a particular kind of downfall in their lives, God says, I care about each one of them. And my people need to care about each one of them. So we, we feel God's ache for justice, particularly amongst his people. And we ache for justice precisely because we image the God who is a God of justice. But we long for that. We long for the, the wrongs in the world to be made right. You can just see certain interactions, certain experiences, certain people across the, the canvas of human experience, down to our own homes, to our own neighborhood, to a PTA meeting, to a, a board meeting, to processing with a, a family member back home, uh, to the person who's, who's pleading for money or resources or opportunity on the side of the road or in a tent community. Almost everywhere we turn, almost everywhere we turn, we see places where we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what God designed for human life together. He designed for something richer and fuller and more beautiful. None of us are able to, to meet all of the needs or most of the needs or even any a large percentage of them. But, but as those who are called to, to image God in his aching for justice, in his longing for justice, what has he called us to? How has he called us to see the fellow image bearer in front of us and say, I, I, can, I can leverage my life in a particular way. I can, I can make a, a certain kind of sacrifice. I can stop and have a conversation. I can insert myself here. I can leverage the agency or the resources I have to meet that need or this opportunity. How has he called us to do those things? We ache, we long for justice. The places we don't, it's probably worth paying more attention because we know God's heart does ache for it. And then we get to the center of the chiasm. Look at me in verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Skip the next line for a second, verse 9. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Here, what is being laid before us is the, the very character of this God, of this covenantal Lord, of Yahweh, in saying he, he is, he is over, he's able to create, but he's also able to destroy. He, he, is, he is God of the whole cosmos, the whole of creation. And particularly in view is saying, yes, he can create, but also he's able to destroy the very places that we try to build our confidence and build our lives apart from him. He's saying, hey, I'm, 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 I'm moving that direction. I'm inching forward to, to start to disrupt and mess with the, the, the kind of areas of confidence, O oh, people of God, that you've built your life upon. I'm going to do this in love, but I'm also doing it for the sake of justice because this is not the way that it's supposed to be. You're, you're building your life. You're building your worship. You're building your affection. You're building how you steward what's in front of you in a way that is, is not in accordance with me. He says, I have the ability to destroy that. And I skipped over that line because this is the very center of the chiasm. It's the very center of the book of Amos. End of verse 8. The Lord is his name. And you probably see there the capital L-O-R-D. This is the, the covenantal name that Yahweh, you know, the God who, who has powers of creation and destruction, who is intentionally drawn near in, 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 in kindness and in humility and compassion to draw near to his people, to, to, to redeem us, to bring us back to himself. And he says, 
Know, know that he is the Lord. The Lord is his name. This is the center of life. This is the center of joy. This is the center of justice. The, the, the cosmic Lord who is Lord over all creation, who demands rightly the full of our lives to, to be brought before him. The Lord is his name. A couple of authors describe the situation this way. Israel had perverted and discarded the principle of justice by which God had structured society. But the divine order was not so easily cast aside. God was also the one who had established the eternal laws of nature. He is able to turn the deepest darkness of human depravity and destruction into light again, as he can also bring to an end the day of prosperity and power. What Israel needed to understand and what God's people always need to remember is that no man-made security system protects them against God's judgment. And we need that to be true. How often we are, we are prone to build our lives according to another standard, another way of being. But when the Lord becomes the center of a community, we're able to hear his call. Look with me in this, this last section, starting verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if man fled from a lion and a bear, and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, in gloom with no brightness in it? So again, this is shocking for the people of God. They're like, we want the day of the Lord. That means victory for us. That means the, the vindication of God's people, the crushing of his enemy. And he's like, no, 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 you don't want the day of the Lord because you've now become my enemy. You've now participated in a way of being that, 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 is, that is so far from my heart of justice that when I come, it is you who will be judged. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. These are the things that God instituted. We need to remember that. God is saying, hey, here are the feasts and the festivals. Here are the offerings. Here's the way to worship Yahweh. And they're like, we're doing those things. He says, yes, but you've missed the heart of it. You're actually not even worshiping me anymore. You just got kind of these external leftovers of a, of a religious form that is not actually centered on me. And he's like, so these things that I've instituted, yes, I, I know I have, but I won't accept them. I despise them. I hate them. I won't listen to them. I won't receive them. They're not pleasing to me because your heart is no longer centered on the covenantal Lord. So this has been stunning for them. Francis Anderson and David Friedman describe it this way. It is their total lifestyle, the combination of ruthlessness with re religiosity, their values, attitudes, and actions in court and cult that makes the religion they profess and practice in their rights abhorrent and abominable to God. It is the smugness and self-satisfaction of those who presume to violate the covenant and at the same time act as though nothing were amiss. They revel in sacrilege and injustice, yet believe that they are welcome in the Lord's house, at the altar of sacrifice and the communal table. It is the gap between unrighteous doing and living and the profession and practice of official and formal piety which disturbs the prophet or, more properly, the God who sent him. Another author put it this way. It's as if the people of God were saying, to use a, a marriage analogy, be like, oh, you know, if a husband were to say, I don't, you know, I'm pretty faithful uh, to, to my wife, to, to marriage. Um, I only commit adultery, you know, here and there, just like a few places, but the rest of the time, like the rest of the time, I am so committed, I'm loyal, I'm, I'm, I maintain covenantal fidelity in this relationship. And Amos is saying, same thing. Same thing. There's not an integrity between kind of these rites and practices and the way you're showing up in these places, but then over here, a life that is, is not connected to the worship of God. It's not flowing from the worship of God. It's like this, this cannot be. I think in this space, it's probably easy for us to, to point outside. 
you know, to, to find kind of our, our, our ideological enemies or the people who think differently about justice or politics or uh, people in our, our own kind of everyday spheres. Where it's like, man, that person's difficult in this relationship. Those are probably the people who need to pay attention to this. And yet the, the call, the conviction, it slices through every one of our lives. Now, we're all prone to, to villainize, to tribalize, uh, to accuse, to blame, to, to use our words and our resources in ways that build ourselves up but, but forget about the others. Uh, all of us find ourselves in the same camp. Tish Harrison Warren describes it this way. We must recognize that the problems with the world are not just out there, among those supposed unitedly evil people, among, among our political or ideological enemies. They are inside us and spring from us as well. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And so we find the gaze is turned in our direction, reminding us that we too are part of systems and suffering in this world, that we make our own contribution to the misery of others, that we are victimizers as well as victims. And this brings us back to the heart of Advent, an opportunity for us to, to flip the lights on to allow Jesus to be the light in dark places, in the recesses of our hearts, the, the things that are hard to name, hard to confess, hard to own, hard to speak about, hard to recognize, to allow his light to flood those places. The conviction sits with all of us, maybe in different ways, different seasons, but it's for all of us, and it drives us. It must, it must point us. This aching for justice, this aching for things to be made right in our own lives and the lives around us, it must point us to Jesus who has come. We have a God who looked at all of the darkness, all of the injustice and said, I'm going to move into this space. I'm going to move in. I'm going to take on human flesh. I'm going to be born in the most humble of circumstances. And I'm going to move through the, the, the injustice and suffer. Consider the injustice that Christ, that Jesus Christ, the only perfect man, only perfect person who's ever lived, what he suffered. And he suffered as that perfect human on the cross, bearing all the injustice upon his life, upon his body, hanging on the tree. But he did not stay there. He went into the grave and then rose again on the third day, conquering sin and Satan and death so that all who would come to him can receive the free gift of life, of salvation, of returning to the Father. Not because we figured out how to be just enough, not because we've dialed in the right political strategy that we can vote in the right way. Those things matter. But the invitation is for all those who are thirsty, all those who are weary, all those who are hungry, all those who are tired, all those who feel broken, all those who will get honest about their sin and come before the living God and say, I need grace, I need mercy. And Jesus says, you, you are precisely the one who I've come, come for. Come, receive, feast, enjoy. My life for yours his perfection, his righteousness, his justice given to us at his first coming. But we long for, we anticipate, we ache for him to come again. Tish Harrison Warren goes on. says, but we are not left without hope. We are called to repent and to remember soberly that Christ is coming again in glory, that we want to be counted among his friends and not his enemies. We are reminded that he sees and knows the ways the strong exploit the weak and will act on their behalf. We must also recall that the Messiah is always and in every way for us and not against us. It is the love of God in the end that wins the day. The love of God is the blazing fire that purifies us, remakes us, and sets right all that is broken in us and in the world. The love of God brings us to repentance. The love of God sets the oppressed free and makes all things new. The love of God insists on truth and justice, the love of God reveals every hidden thing. And it is this love that is coming for us. And indeed, he has come for us in the person and work of Jesus. So as we sit here today, the places where we, we ache for justice in our own lives, we, we, we've experienced the injustice toward us, and we long for things to be made new, to be made right. He is love who has come for you. Are the places where our, our, our own tendencies and proclivities and decisions and kind of indifference toward the injustice in the world, where that needs to, to be lit up in our hearts. We need to confess and repent and turn toward him. It is he in his love who comes for us. 
to bring us close to himself yet again. And we know that Christ, who has come, has promised to come again. Now, this is not just some sort of well-wishing, kind of thin hope that we try to hold on to as Christians. This is basic to the profession of following Jesus. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We know that our Savior King has promised to make all things new. It is upon him that we place our hope. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, you, you are the, the Savior King, and you are the, the cosmic King. There, there's not one corridor or segment or hidden area uh, that, that is outside of the scope of your reign and of your sight. And I ask that we would allow that to be uh, convicting so that it can become inviting. That, that you would light up the places of our lives. We, we simply just need the light of Christ. We need you to, to enter in by your Spirit. You know, what you love to do is to, to restore and to renew and to refresh your people. And for those who are, are, are far from you, who have never laid hold of Christ, who have never looked to Jesus, the Son of God, as their Savior, oh, how you long to bring them close, how you long to save them, how you long to bring them into your family. So may you give us hearts that are receptive. May you give us tenderness. May, may you break up the hard soil in our hearts where we need it in the places where we are just deeply broken, where it's hard to anticipate even what hope or joy would look like, oh, would you enter into those places as well? Would you light up the dark places? Be our Savior King. We know that you are, and we need you to show up in these ways. Please, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.